Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, dudes and dudettes, pits of sarlacc and bantha fodder. You have pressed the buttons that allow you to access the very powerful Manchildian candidates on this fine, sunny old day. Um, my name's G-Man, and um, it's very exciting to be here. It feels like we've been on hiatus for a little bit, and um, <laughs> sitting with my dearest of dears, uh, P-Boss, um, is sitting across from me. What's going down, Holmes? Well, first of all, let me say it's just lovely to have you back in the studio. Oh. Full disclosure, the, the last episode you were scrying in via some sort of online portal. And mm. look, you know, it was lovely to hear you chortle through said portal, but it's lovely to be back <laughs> in the same room, my friend. It was Isn't just. It? Yeah, you kind of just sounded like you were a little like a Danny DeVito sort of height dude in a phone booth. And that's nothing that's... against DeVito. <laughs> no, it's something against the phone booth, I have to tell you. The acoustics were horrible in there. You're just wretched. And for those listeners under the age of 22, you can Google a phone booth. <laughs> That's enough said about that. But my friend, look, yep. this is the episode that we threatened to have and now we're having it. And I'm super happy and I'm also aware that I'm going to go through waves of being triggered and I'm going to try to control that, my bro bro. Yes, because I do believe eventually this is uh, a story of uh, possibly a new hope. Uh-huh, right? Ooh. But we are, of course, referring to the Star Wars universe. And see, I'm already doing well. I wanted to say shit show, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and we have to discuss the Mandalorian. So I don't know how you feel about it, but I think we explore what's going on. Bit of a critique. And yet another episode where we're sort of uh, talking about Star Wars without threatening a pure Star Wars status quo, which would be too too triggering for me, my brother. I know, I know this. Now I've got I've got something that I want to mention to you, and and yes. I think this fits with the tone of what we're trying to do today, right? Okay. So all right, my wonderful nine year old son is into the Star Wars verse. You know, the next generation has inherited the mantle slash curse. And so we pretty much are working through the movies, man, from prequels to, how do I say this, you know, original three. Mm, okay, so saga order and not sort of, um, yes, um, yeah, chronologically made order. Yeah. That's it, man. Great, Lovely. great call. Saga order, right? And again, I will preface this with going, look, even with all my anger and even the vehement uh, body fluids that we've spat at the prequels, I don't know, man. Like, at least there's a narrative. At least there's an overarching narrative, right? Mm. Which we could pull apart later on. <sighs> so we get to Jedi, right? We get to Jedi. Oh, yeah. And there's the, the big moment. Oh, young Skywalker. You will die. Lightning, the whole yeah. thing, right? And it was kind of lovely that those moments like cut shots of vader you know cut shots of skywalker and then of course it gets to the great event which by the way i can even put up with the whole additional no that's been put in now so you're you're across that aug yeah man so vader now goes no Picks up <laughs> the emperor. Look, I could live with that, right? Uh, all right. Yeah. I'm struggling to follow you on that one, but yeah, all right. We'll talk about uh, this. Yeah. Continue, please. Sorry. I know. I know. It hurts me. So uh, there it is. And we watch it, and my son is like, oh my God, bearing in mind this is the first time he's seen Jedi, right? 
Mm. And so we're pretty much getting to the credits and the, the Ewok party and all that, then into the credits. And he just turns to me and he goes, how come the Emperor didn't die, Dad? Because mm. he's obviously seen the other the ones. Ghost. Right? Yeah. Now, this is where I get triggered, buddy. What, <laughs> what do I say to my son? Like... Can you help me out here? Like, I'll tell you what I said, but what would you do? What would you say? Why didn't the Emperor die, G-Fresh? Ah, oh, that's a tough one, man, because, I mean, we we know the answer, really, don't we? Because we've followed on through <laughs> against our own goodwill and thinking. However, um, th- I think you can philosophize and explain it. Like, um, you know, the Emperor oh, really? was not. Oh, please, yeah, of course you can. <laughs> Of course you can. He was not a good guy. You know, that sort of ghostly image upon death that is left as a resonant piece of the Force, a.k.a. Kenobi and, you know, Anakin, etc. That's um, that's only for the good guys, man. That's how you live on forever, really. You don't get the Sith sort of coming back as ghosts. That's the whole thing that, um, that uh, Kenobi says to um, Darth Vader. In their first uh, encounter, well, their last encounter, should I say, that we experienced in A New Hope. You can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. That's what he means. That's the thing, you know. This is the whole point. So that's why the Emperor doesn't appear as a shimmery ghost. Because he's a really, really bad guy. But also, mm, it goes on. (laughs) Okay, okay. So, that answer, lovely. Philosophical. I'm yeah. even going to edit in a tick noise nice. after that, right? But that's not what he was referring to. The right. little, the the you know, the little so and so has seen the final three movies, uh. and so literally says to me, "Yeah, but the emperor's in the later ones. Like, how come he? How do he survive that, Dad? <sighs> right? Yeah. So again, I put it to you." With your understanding of the poop shoot that the final three were, like seriously, what's the actual answer? I have none <laughs> for that, I'm afraid, my dude. Is that what you're fishing for? Because it doesn't make sense and that's what we've tried to understand. Well, I don't even really like fishing, let alone fishing for this. But what I'm saying is technically if we follow where it ended up, that Palpatine was a clone. Uh, and so yeah. the overarching other Palpatine, the dude that was on the hydraulic frame in the yeah. last movie, has got jars of Snokes, jars of Palpatines. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Like, this is what I had to try to do. And young son is kind of looking at me as kids do going, I don't get it. It's like, well, this is just, well, you know, there's another Palpatine and he's the grand author of all of this and he's just chucking out clones right, left and centre. And then, and then my son says to me, oh, kind of really sort of makes it feel different about the sacrifice that, you know, Anakin and Vader made. And I was like, oh, wow. <sighs> you are my boy. is my problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is definitely your son, by the way, then, man. 
Like, yeah, that's a confounding, really frustrating scenario, isn't it? I'm sorry that you've had to be stumped oh, by this, man. I Again. Know, I, need, I need therapy. So it was re-triggering. And part of me wanted to go, well, this is what happens, son, when an organisation you know, <laughs> driven by a financial agenda buys intellectual property. Don't love anything, son, because the man will eventually, you know, but I didn't, right? I feel like that could be a real thing, dude. I love it. Oh, dear. Uh, yeah, all right. I'm sorry that had to all happen and that you're f- re-triggered, you know. Goodness gracious, you man. you got to worry is all I'm saying when a nine-year-old is looking at you yeah. like, what? Yeah, what? that's right. Clones? I'm sorry, that doesn't make any sense. Jar of <laughs> yeah. Snokes. I even I even put on the last movie and I said, look, there's the jar. There's a jar of Snokes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. No, that's that's a big thing, isn't it? If a nine-year-old can pluck apart the fallibility of a certain situation and find it completely illogical, well, I'm pretty sure it might be illogical, you know? Does it make sense? No. Ladies and gentlemen of this supposed jury, it does not make sense. God damn it, man. Like I said, love or hate the prequels, I'm kind of ambivalent. I've got pointy thoughts that go either way, but at least they fit into a narrative of going, look, we're going to tell a story over six movies of the most powerful Jedi that ever lived because it's he's the only one that had the strength to be so deeply embedded in the dark side, but to come back. You know, the yes. chosen one is the chosen one because of his fallibility, but he's, I won't say noble, but his wonderful capacity of to return. It was fantastic that he still dies, though, mm. because all that malevolent stuff, especially that we find out years later in the canon, you know, hunting down Jedi, just murdering cats right, left and centre, for me it was almost the perfect arc because he couldn't continue living. Like, how do you bring him home and go, hey, hey everyone, this is, this is my dad. Um, exactly. Bit of a rough history, but give him a go. <laughs> yeah, he's very awkward at barbecues, but he's working on his foul language, you know, and the lightning powers, and it just zaps and yeah, pops the balloons. He's in a behaviour change group, and he's really making one foot yeah. in front of the other, you know. But what's important is he's identified his problems. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, exactly so, right. Yeah, God. So, look. I wanted to mention that to you. I'm glad. Um, Thank you. Because I think it's relevant to what we're discussing today. But look, look, you know, let's bring it in. Let's bring it back in. And I guess the other point that I wanted to reference in this discussion is, geez, dude, getting you to complete watching The Mandalorian was not easy, my friend. Hey, man, come on, <laughs> dude. I got stuff to do, man. I got five kids to feed. <laughs> and that's and not true. And they're not even yours. It's so No, dumb. they're really not. Like, it's very, it's just randoms down at the taxi rank. It's just great. Yeah. Here you go, Eat little buddy. Here's vegetables. a pie. And stop spitting on the floor. <laughs> it's bloody exhausting. No one hears you. Yes, it did take me a long time. Um, and it must have been the most frustrating occasion oh. for you because you got to the, the end of the second season. You're like, dude, can you get onto this, please? I'm like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm on my way, okay? I know. God, damn it. And then all of a sudden, I didn't realize, by the time I got to episode six of the final season, I'm like, uh-oh, okay, we're snowballing and I can't stop. So yes. it's kicking the ball. It's initially getting that momentum, bro, and that did take some time, I'll admit. You've really described it well in previous episodes. You, you know, you are suffering from a bit of franchise fatigue. Yeah. 
But my God, man, it was just tough. It was like having an itch that I couldn't scratch because, like, if there's one person on this planet that I need to pull apart this show for so many reasons, it's <laughs> yeah. G-Man, and he's dragging the feet. <laughs> yeah, really was there. I was out at sea, man, I'll tell you. But it was fun. I was having a nice old time. But that's not the point. But to, to anyone that's just tuned in, of course, this is going to be a little bit Star Warsian. Not a little bit. It's a hundred P Star Warsian. It's not a geography And podcast. we've been trying to get to this point for a long, long time. We've been alluding to Star Wars this whole time, making references to Star Wars the whole time we've been doing this potty. So just a quick disclaimer. This is a massive spoiler. Um, program today and if you haven't seen The Mandalorian seasons one and two then look either stick around and sort of get excited or bugger off for a little while and get yourself some knowledge and then come back to us Um, but you've had a bunch of time this is oh yeah it's been a bunch of time now like anything we spoil is generally 30 years old and everyone's had 30 years this admittedly (laughs) six months ago (laughs) yeah it was sort of a bit more uh, relative But um, yeah, today we're going to be launching into The Mandalorian, the series, the production, the special effects, the concept, and a little bit of the lore, and see if that attaches itself to the the broader Star Warsian community, because this is where we sort of suffer when someone tries to add a new thing in and tries to treat it as though nothing else has happened. We're not starting afresh here. This is a rich, rich universe. And um, it goes beyond that. It's from films, TV shows, video games, and uh, and fan fiction novels as well. You know, Absolutely. so there's a lot Comics, to sink our teeth yeah. in here today. So listen, man, let's kick off, shall we, about the Mandalorian itself. Now, of course, we start with um, the main character is the Mandalorian. And so what I didn't really understand at the beginning of this, I understand Boba Fett, our classic Star Warsian bounty hunter, everyone's favorite Star Wars oh, yeah. character, is a Mandalorian. Now, what I was under the assumption was that a Mandalorian was, in fact, a species of people. Yes. I thought this was a race, you know. I thought these people weren't taking their hats off because they had hideous tentacles underneath or some such <laughs> scaly faces. I don't even know. Sure. But we learn very swiftly in this uh, Mandalorian endeavor that a Mandalorian is in fact not a species. It's more of a a philosophy, a creed, if you will, nice. of, um, of like-minded creatures who wish to make money for deeds, both nefarious and maybe a little bit more above the cuff, but um, generally bounty hunters are <laughs> they're not really your most savoury of folk, are they? So Fringe dwellers, ethically. Yes. Yeah. So what do we understand further about the Mandalorians? Do you think that's an acceptable way, a creed perhaps, to describe the Mandalorians? Absolutely, man. And as we'll sort of discuss uh, to come... Uh, our hero is kind of more in a cult in a way. So yeah, our, our hero sort of um, takes the, the code uh, to, you know, extreme lengths, which is, I, I even thought the revelation of that within the narrative was just fantastic. Mm. The moment Katie Sackhoff's character and, and her friends literally look at each other and go, oh, he's one of them. Yeah, yeah, that's a good We'll sort of come back to that as well. But yeah, man, well said. It's like there's a warrior's code to this. There's a code of ethics and practice maybe. So Mm. yeah, it's sort of akin to samurai, but maybe more the sort of the ronin type of samurai. Ah, well, there you go. Yeah. I think for me, the starting point 
or the next step is John Favreau. Mm. So, and I'm sure I'm going to mention this guy a thousand times, but what a fascinating jump on point to go, I want to build a story about that dude that's in Empire and Jedi and not really a lot. He doesn't have a ton of lines. He doesn't have a ton of screen presence, but we were just fascinated with him. So kudos to Favreau already for going, that's the dude I'm going to pick to build a, a whole, I won't say alternate universe, but a universe that's going on within the Star Wars verse. Mm. And dude, even incorporating IG-88 and all these sorts yes. of things. Because that was always a very interesting point for me in Empire going, wow, like Vader's using hired guns. Like what a cool idea. Yeah. It's that continuing investment from Lucas, I think, of going, I always want to have a Western tinge in this. Yes, yes. You just alluded to something beautiful and that you've raised two nice, beautiful things there. The Western tinge, which is just... That's exactly what it is, man. We're on the outer rims of the galaxy. This is a lawless place, man, you know? That's really well identified. Sorry to cut you off there. I just wanted to highlight that. I like that. Well, I think what was interesting for me on that whole westernization sort of thing, even if that's a word, it is a word. We have a podcast. We've discussed this. Because doing a bit of a rewatch of Firefly, as I have been, they're really jumping onto that concept as well like it's potentially taken even further with firefly in terms of the language they use the music the the set design and all that sort of stuff but yeah that to me was favreau is picking up on a small crack in the door like a small peak and just what a wide expansive narrative that he created Mm. Mm. and i guess my first high five to the man is dude you made it so different, but at the same time, so familiar. You really did go back to the law, L-O-R-E, that we all love and I think have been starved for and just cooked up a soup, man, and fed it up hot, in my opinion. Yeah. What was your experience? Because I found immediately I was immersed, brother. Yes, dude. Yes, I I 100% agree. And that's got everything to do with the tone and just an understanding of the source material. This is actually super mysterious to most of us, you know. And often where, you know, we've discussed this in the past too, when I lend my intrigue or interest to a particular story, man, we've had Jedi Knights and we've had Knights and we've had the heroes and we've had all of this sort of stuff for so long. We always focus on what we deem the most interesting But what to me at this point, after being saturated by this for so many decades now, is the little guys, the ones who are in the background, who are just trying to eke out, you know, a living and earn a little bit of scratch and just be alive in this rich universe. And here's these dumb, noble, sorcerer sorts, aka the Jedis, wandering around with their swords going, oh, everything about me is important. And yeah, sure, it's great fun. But Who are the little guys? And so we get a little taste of that, man. And we're on the outer rim of the galaxy. This is where some stuff goes down, man. It's a little bit lawless, you know. And that's why the whole notion of um, when you bring up the westernization sort of um, 
idea behind this, the gunslinging sort of uh, factor. And then that also you alluded as well perfectly to um, it blends into the samurai nature of this as well, in particular sort of like the code of honour that Mando seems to follow, his own code. And that's even more akin to what would be, you referred to it as well, the Ronin, the masterless samurai, who still have this code and creed and um, design about how they will operate, um, you know, honor amongst thieves sort of thing, but still a yeah. little bit of a code of honor, you know, and um, the samurai slash Western, you get a, you know, good, bad and ugly sort of vibe. And it's really, really very well done. And it pays homage to that, man. Like just by the, the sheer fact that we're witnessing this, it's just, just spot on. And kudos to Favreau for having that vision. Not at just the vision, but then the execution. It's just stunning, man. It really, really is. So your comparison there to the samurai, that's um, you know, that's well noted. And just ever so quickly before we um delve a little bit further, like uh in 1972 was one of the very first Lone Wolf and Cub movies. It's also known as Baby Cart, um, and was also a manga in 1970, but this was six films, and it was a lone samurai with a baby in a cart, literally, and he is his protector. The direct comparisons to that and The Mandalorian, oh, can't be ignored. It's exactly what this is. Unavoidable. Know? Yeah. I think if were we to have Favreau in a discussion, I would bet my house on the fact that, A, he's seen those movies, B, loves them, and... C is definitely saying, look, they're a part of the ingredients or a part of the cinematic influence that sort of runs over this whole uh, constructed series. Yeah. And, dude, what a pull, man. What a reference. Yeah. You've absolutely nailed it because, for me, we've had a lot of fan service in the last few years with these movies. The wonderful guys over at Red Letter Media have talked ad nauseum about the difference between going, look, it's stuff you know, it's an ATST. look, it's a TIE fighter, look, it's Vader, you know him. The difference between just throwing things at nerds like us and actually having a story that contributes in such a way to the canon... Mm is a real trick. And Favreau the Ringmaster has pulled this off with much aplomb, my brother. And I believe the key strength is the ingredients that we've talked about. He's looked at the fundamental physics engines of what worked with those Star Wars movies and essentially has said, I need to put in the same key foundational ingredients. I need to put in the same key influences however I move forward with the story. And you know what? As long as I've got the same key influences, it's going to be a rich Star Wars lived-in universe. Yes. Yes, and that's, a, that's another thing too. The universe that is brought upon us and you once again have alluded to everything. We might have had a pre-production meeting maybe even, even talked about some of this, but... We also might have been talking about a lot of this stuff at work for years at Nauseam and particularly the last yeah. few weeks and yeah. months with Mando. Yes, Guilty. it's big. But yeah, the Firefly thing, the, the, the richness of that universe, it makes it feel, and we've talked about it, repurposed. Like all of the things, everyone that's living out on the outer rims there, they're eating out of living they're trying to survive they've got stuff that they've just found it's like oh that's my house you know oh that's my new uh land speeder or whatever and it's all got 
hodgepodge pieces, you know, it's all cobbled together like a little Frankenstein's monster. Yes. And that is very, very cool universe to inhabit. It means that, um, I don't know, there's, there's so much possibility, so much variety that's um, inherent just because of that. Absolutely. And um, that's really damn exciting, man, isn't it? Well, you know my feeling. Like, I love, I love the used future. Yes, 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 used future. That's a good way of putting it, man. Yeah, and it, um, it's nice because, I mean, even when Star Wars, New Hope, when the very first one appears, right, and those words start scroll before they start scrolling, it says, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This is alluding to, this is science fiction, but it's telling us it's in the past. Yeah. What the hell? So this is the whole thing, man, you know, and um, this is where we really get to see that, I think. You know, our first introduction is um, Tatooine, really, you know, and when you're looking over Moss Eisley and then when they finally get down there and oh, all sorts of stuff is happening. There's people cooking food, there's a guy having a blaster fight in the corner and, you know, droids aren't allowed in the bar and all this sort of stuff. You're like, what? Why? What is all this? It's got this richness and often when it's not explained, man, you know, that's where it really gets me. And that's when I really like it because it allows your mind to be able to just, oh, okay, I'm actually starting to think about this all by myself. I don't need my hand held throughout this journey necessarily, but, you know, being led to water is one thing, but whether you drink it, that's yeah, another thing. So it's a, yeah, just the richness of this whole endeavor is really, really um, fundamental, I think, to the experience. And Favreau knew this, man. Yes. He's, you know, giving us what we want, really. He knew he had to keep in his Akira Kurosawa influences. He knew that he had to, as you said, he, he knew that he had to add an element of, I don't know, like Josie Wales. Yeah. There needed to be the melding of these ideas in order to project forward because these are very much the ideas and the concepts that are Bro, they're just absent in the final three. Like, you watch those final three, and I'm sorry, I'll try not to beat them up, but who cares? I paid my money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not happy. But that might be the thing. I would have loved to go into any of the pre-production meetings and going, but where are your prime physics engines? Where's your Seven Samurai influence in all these movies? Yes. Where's your Western? Where is it? Because it seems to have gone. Now, fair enough if you take a, a nice little tangential sort of a ride with something like Rogue One and you go, well, we just want to make a war movie. Yeah, yeah. I want to explore what happens between, you know, this certain period of time. 100%. I enjoyed that. It was like, okay, cool. We've got a clear theme. We've got a clear idea. It's a war movie. Yeah, mm. sweet. How did they get the plans? That would have been hard. Yeah. I was okay with all the spoilers, guys. I was okay with all the death at the end because... It's a war movie. Yeah, that's right. Not everyone's coming home. No, and a lot of Bothan spies died for this information. You know? <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah, they really did. I exactly. So moving forward, I mean, we have a character here whose face is covered up, who does not have a ton of dialogue, and we can't take our eyes off him. Yes. Now... What do you think's going on there, my bro? I mean, was that your experience? Because I found him compelling, to say the least. Yes, man. Hundy P. The thing about it is, is that, um, you know, you have said you'd never see this person's face. And this is sort of where, uh, well, as a human being, I don't know how many of our listeners are qualify for this. However, facial 
emotions allow us to understand certain peculiarities of a situation, etc., etc. And when you can't see someone's face, how do they emote? How can they give you and convey what they're thinking, feeling, and what are their motivations? Pedro Pascal, who scored the job of, um, let's call him by his name, Din Jaran is our Mandalorian's name, right. scored the job of this role, and we've discussed this in him looking at potentially the scripts that he was given for two seasons yeah. of this program. The dude has like two pages of dialogue the whole time. You know, he just barely emotes half the time, but somehow in his body posing, just the design of the outfit, and just little hints about knowing his intentions. Wow. How is such a powerful performance capable under such sort of duress? And the person I was watching it with at the time was like, how do I know what he's thinking? Yet he's just standing there sort of fondling his uh, blaster in his holster, yet I know what he's going to say next. Yeah. It's really quite amazing. And that's, once again, you come boil it down to concept. You boil it down to design. Had someone else got that and had that notion, somehow would have fluffed it. If it wasn't Favreau and his guidance and leadership throughout that, would have been a vastly different experience, I think, man. There's a psychological concept where three or four different people can completely read in different meanings to the same sort of blank facial expression. I've done studies on it. And it's kind of more about uh, your own state of mind or your own mood or, or you know what you're bringing. It's amazing, man. So some people can look at a completely neutral face and go, oh, that dude's angry. Some people can go, oh, that dude's happy. So that completely supports what you're talking about. Favreau is putting us by his wonderful cinematic direction. He's putting us in a certain space and it's influencing how we look at that potential blank canvas. And I think you're right because there are episodes where he's in an ethical conundrum. In fact, it might be safe to say one of the overarching ideas is that, I mean, essentially this is hero's journey because he mm, changes. Yes. He goes through duress and he changes his the way that he approaches and views the world. But, yeah, I think one of the overarching narratives is, is that he has his sense of ethics challenged. And even in the second season, again, spoilers, if you haven't seen it, what are you doing? Get your, get your relative fecal matter together. Is that even when we sort of see his face in the scenes later on in the movie, what I thought was fascinating is he still doesn't overly gesture. And I thought about that and then I suddenly thought, well, man, kind of alludes to it. He's had a helmet on all his life. So he's not really going to be reliant or have learnt to gesture Yes. Overtly with his face. Yeah. He's not going to really get up on stage and do stand-up and pull faces. He's not that sort of dude. So He's out of practice, man. It's yeah. influenced yeah. how he communicates, man. He's very direct, but he's very simple. There's not a lot of complex messaging in the way that he speaks. Again, it's just Favreau, man. It's in the writing. A dude who's had a tin hat on all his life isn't suddenly going to take it off and communicate like Jack Black, you know? Yeah, that's right. It's all in the writing. It's all in the immersion. So for me, dude, it was fascinating watching this character, who we don't get a lot of nonverbal stuff, play opposite this wonderful little Yoda dude. Yes. And I know that you and I had reservations when we heard that this was in production. We were worried that the 
the little Yoda thing, it'd be another Ewok thing, be a pain in the butt. But I felt Groku was done exceptionally well as also man. I mean, yes. What was your sort of take on Groku? Well, that's interesting because it, we know that this little creature, colloquially, is uh, Baby Yoda because it's of the same race. But no, this is not Yoda. This series is set five years after Return of the Jedi. Yoda is gone. How can this be possible? And so here's Groku, who's about 50, 60 years old, who is an absolute infant. And yes, man, when you see a picture of this creature, wow, welcome to Marketing City. Let's sell plushies and toys and little ends for your pencils and all that sort of stuff. And initially, yes, I get a bit Ewoky and I'm like, ah, you're just in there to make extra money. I see what's happening. But somehow, somehow, this little creature is so well executed, so endearing, and you and I have had the luxury of time and space to be able to play so many video games. It's unbelievable. What I find irritating, and I think we all do now after generations of this, is when you've got a companion with you and you've got an escort quest, we call them, who are in the way and they are so damn annoying that you wish they were dead. Why can't you just die? And then you try to put a couple of rounds into them and you know, of course, you can't because it's the pinnacle part of the story. When you get a character that is necessary as an escort, as in Groku in this instance, um, and we can then reference that back to the baby cart, which makes it almost identical, um, he is never in the way. He is never that whole too much to handle scenario. Yes, he's sort of, he's an infant and he's, you know, does some infantile things. He is also incredibly powerful. And we learn to discover this over the course of the seasons. And um, he is just a fantastic, fantastic addition to the Star Wars universe um, for once again, concept and execution. And he's not in the way, you know, that's where it really gets to me. And that's what I really love about it. And um, just a side note before we move on about that, I just want to talk ever so briefly about um, how they actually created Groku technically for, you know, in pre, whilst filming and in post. And the interesting thing is like most of Groku really is a puppet. And there is something about that. When you've got an actor actually acting with some other physical entity on the screen, you get a far better performance as opposed to when you think of poor old Liam Neeson trying to act with some idiot standing with a tennis ball and he's got to pretend that that's the stupidest character anyone's ever seen. You get this... (laughs) Missy called Jaja Binks. Missy, your humble servant. How do you fluff up um, Liam Neeson, man? You gave him, like the most rigid ability to perform there. It's just not fair. And so what they did was they actually did the puppetry. But there is a few moments when Groku does some walking and a few special effecty stuff. And what they did really cleverly was because we as viewers are more convinced by the fact that that's a puppet and somehow can suspend disbelief, when they were animating him for those walking bits, they animated him as though he was a puppet. So still maintained that. And we're like, Cool. I'm still convinced. So had it gone for hyper-realism, super smooth movement and all this sort of stuff, wouldn't have been as convincing. So it's just really, really tasteful that that's how they chose to do it, man. Absolutely, my bro. You've nailed that. My vibe straight away was it took me back to Dagobah. It took me back to, it took me back to Yoda. And 
Dude, every time I rewatch, particularly Empire, I am blown away by what puppetry can do. Mm. And I think this is what made the reboot series of The Dark Crystal really fun to watch too because yeah. they went back and went okay we're going to do we're going to do a large amount of puppets and animatronics and that sort of stuff right yeah there's just something about it you just don't get as much uncanny valley sort of vibe it's it's yeah. as if there's a person in there and i'm always going to refer to this moment so that point in dagobah when yoda is still testing still being the trickster I will help you He's pulling apart all of his stuff and eventually when they're back in his little hut and he's throwing away lines to suggest that I've got a bit more intel than you think. Oh, mother, I'll forget I was he. <laughs> I'll forget I That moment, bro, bro, when he goes from being the little trickster giggling man and reveals himself as Yoda and Dude, the, that moment, bro. His body stiffens. He physically stands up, stands up a little more, and this austerity and elegance just descends upon this puppet. And it, you know, Frank Oz changes his voice a little bit. I cannot teach him. The boy has no patience. I mean, I've not had moments like that many times when. Admittedly, I was younger at the time, but it was like, that's not a puppet. That's Yoda. That's a character that has gravitas. So for me, I brought a lot into this show going, please don't mess this up. Please, I know you're going to do puppets. That's great, but please don't mess it up. And dude, for mine, there was comparable moments when Groku's using his powers and, and exposing the fact that he has great force powers his demeanor changes and there's just a little lean to sort of going, oh, there's that nobility. There's that depth of yeah. character. Yeah. Uh, my bro. That yeah. was that was a win for me. That was a tick. I, I, I'm really, I'm going to just be open and transparent here. I just don't have many gripes with this production. I got a couple, but not many. No. And that's that's the thing. Like, as we've said, like just even the core elements of it. Like I, you know, I want to pick it apart. I want to have problems with it. But every time I come up with a problem, I'm like, ah, shit, there's a good solution. Yeah. All right. It's really well-rounded, isn't it? You've got a whole experience there, man. And that's, that's the difference, dude. And it, it, I don't know. It's so, so powerfully, um, it's so incredible what they've actually done to achieve this too. Can I, is it the right time to wax about like one of the technical marvels that this, um, this film dude. actually, uh, this show brings forth? Dude, please do. I mean, right. we're, we're sequentially <laughs> doing the alien autopsy here, but yeah. I, need, I need you to speak about this because you've got a better understanding. There is a reason that immersion was so intense and I yeah. posit, that you're going to take us through one of the prime reasons, dude. Yes, yes. And um, as we know, throughout the course of um, Lucas film and Lucas Arts history, uh, the company has been ILM, which is Industrial Light and Magic. And they're one of the premier, premier visual effects teams on the planet. Uh, you know, yeah. probably, probably parallel, if not just a little bit more elevated than Weta Digital, who've done all of the Lord of the Rings and then consequently all the Marvel films as well. Yes. Um, and so what they did for this, man, this is, and I think this is where it blends itself a bit more closely to theatre, 
in a way because they've got this most incredible soundstage, you know, this incredible stage that they use. And they're using a new technology that's not been done before. And what they've literally got is the most enormous 360 projector screen um, around this soundstage where the actors stand in the middle of with, you know, a variety of props and a tiny little element of scenery as well. But what this does is they use the Unreal Engine that we would commonly know and commonly used in the uh, video game industry for the most crisp, cutting-edge graphics that you have ever seen. It's not just a clever name. No, no. And if you're a PC aficionado, you generally get most of the glory because if uh, if your graphics card is sound enough, you can see the individual pores on the individual rocks on a landscape. You know, it's amazing. So what they do with this is they've got these pre-rendered backgrounds, these massive, massive backgrounds, um, almost akin to the old school where they would literally paint, you know, the backdrops. So you get this uber detail, even though it's a bit static. But in this way, what they've done is they've made it so high def that the actors are standing in this 360 room with all the projections. So what they can see, the actors can see exactly where they are in the landscape. And it might be cliffs that would be Tunisia in the past, but they've been able to render them. So the actor looks off to the west and there are these cliffs and it's projecting lighting onto them, especially for Mando. Once he gets his um his armor when he's the chromest dude on in the galaxy, right? Everything's reflecting off him. So as a post-production visual effects artist, that is a nightmare. But what oh, they've yeah. got is points of reference because it's actually shining, literally projected onto him, which is stunning. But the problem with that is too, with static backgrounds, is that they're static and there's nothing you can do. But this is not static. There's a technique that they've been using since the 16-bit generation of video games called parallax scrolling. And that is when it's emulating a form of depth, trying to, you know, emulate depth. And so you'll have a layer at the front and a layer a little bit behind that and a layer a little bit behind that and on it goes, depending on how much it can render. And when moving sideways, they all move at different rates. So it emulates a speed and distance, which is really incredible. So they do this parallax scrolling with this 360 degree set and uh, with the camera movement and the back will the background will adjust itself accordingly to make it always in perspective it's stunning so when we're referring when i was referring um just before to poor liam neeson trying to re- act Ugh. you know act with a tennis ball there's this jar jar binks and he's about this high well that's hard to do man it's really really hard to do but now what the actors have got direct points of reference and so when a character says over behind that hill the other actors can look oh there's actually a hill it's it's stunning so you get a far more realistic um looking show and your actors give a far more realistic and pointed performance and then in post-production half of it's already done so you've actually just got to stitch it together spit and polish half of your work's done it's a stunning technical achievement man and it really does blend itself or lend itself to um, the quality that, you know, Favreau really wanted to get. And we got it, man. The tone, the color, the sound, the vibe, everything is tick, 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 tick. Hell, you're 10 out of 10 the whole way through. So I think that's a really, really interesting, um, you know, concept. And we're going to be seeing a lot more of that in the future. But that's how you can get a really big budget feel 
by using what is actually half the budget. So yes. then you can use the other half of the budget for all sorts of other stuff, you know? It's great. Yeah. Put it in your money bank. I don't give a damn. But so, yeah, we got a very, very good uh, product because of this. Hey, like stunning. I think you've nailed a couple of points there. So creatively, it just creates options because you do watch other shows and if you watch carefully, people's eye lines are often slightly awry. Like even if it is just slightly off, even if you're not conscious of it, you're reading it. You're looking at that non-verbal. It's, it's taking you out of it. There are some moments in some other big movies and franchises where the eye lines are consistently, I don't know, it takes you out of it. And so I think you raise a major point there. Immersion is just immersion. You're just cooking in this because they're in it too. That's mm. their eye line. That's what they're looking at. But I think the other thing that is amazing for me is that it was seamless. There's no looking behind the curtain and seeing the great and powerful Oz. Let's be honest, with other technologies, you can see Oz. This one was just seamless. And especially on a second watch through of the whole series, I was a bit more... uh, Yeah, you're looking for it. Yeah. Maybe in the true sense of the term, sceptical. Like I Mm. was wanting to look at things that I could pick apart and... uh, that first time that Mando walks out into that world and the shot pulls back and opens up and you just get this expansive, it's like, oh yeah, man, I'm in a Star Wars world just instantly. And yeah. oh, what a joy that must have been for the performers, my friend. Oh, absolutely. Just even being part of some new technology like that just must have been a thrill, man. Oh, man. You think of all the guys in the 70s and 80s like Richard Dreyfus and Roy Scheider are going, man, we're a movie about a shark and the shark didn't work. (laughs) Yeah. So this moves me on to casting because we've sort of talked about direction and design and and the technologies and that sort of stuff. But you you and I love to talk about performance and and this is where it could have been lost. Uh, This is where we've seen moments lost. Dude, I really want to applaud the casting. Pedro Pascal, obviously. I mean, for me, flawless victory. Insert Mortal Kombat soundbite here. Flawless victory. But man, this cast that comes in and around. I mean, the first name, this is no way in order of appearance, but I mean, dude, Bill Burr. Like, just jumps <laughs> yeah. out at me. Like, dude, I just thought he was great. Was not expecting Bill Burr. Like, not for a second. And in fact, when he first popped on screen... I couldn't work out if it was him or not. I'm like, hang on, is it actually? Yes, it's him. Then I heard him talk. Of course, he's got that Jersey slang. And it's like, wow, there he is. What a, yeah. And I was very dubious too, man. I thought, okay, they're going to cheapen this by a bit of Bill Burr-esque comedy, but it wasn't the case. He actually just no. played his role very, very bloody well. You know, that's a hell of a hell of an addition to any sort of cast there. And I think, shit, man, we're going to be seeing a bit more of Bill Burr in sort of um, outside of his stand-up and outside of any other TV shows in that regard because he actually nailed it, man. I agree with you. There was always a sort of a laconic, slight Bill Burrian. But this was another side to the guy. He was still critical, questioning, but... He was sort of debating bigger things like power and distribution of power and governance and that sort of stuff. So I loved him in this man. I have to mention Carl Weathers. Oh, dude. He's who who I quote. If ever I'm referring to the Mandalorian or anything like that, it's Mando. His deep, sultry tone in just getting the Mandalorian to pay attention to him. It's just great. Absolutely, man. And I mean, 
dude's looking good for a cat who was born in 1948. Like, oh, God. just permajacked that guy. Yes, 100%. It's rare, my brother, that I get such joy from casting. Like, I, I am that geeky cat that will sit with my IMDb app open when I'm watching some sort of animated film with the kids or something. I just I just needs to know. But this was a real, like a smorgasbord of just, oh, ha, ha. You know, someone turns up, but then also they don't just turn up. They come to play. Yes. Giancarlo Esposito, man, as Moff Gideon. Oh, dude. Dude, what a seething goddamn character that guy is, hey? Like, yeah, what a malevolent being. There is no shred of goodness in that guy at all. And, you know, we've discussed this too. Whenever there's a really, really good antagonist, a really good bad guy, Man, they don't blink. This dude's eyes are massive and not once do those lids close, you know, throughout his performance. It's freaky, man. Really freaky. How do I not mention? <laughs> I mean, did you pick it up straight away? Like, I, I was like, I think that's Werner Herzog. Is that Werner Herzog? Yeah, like- dude. I know. I know. Not not even a bit. And the, the big surprise for me, and I don't want to blow your wad here, but it was a very particular little character with a lot of makeup on whom I didn't get straight away. I oh. saw the credits roll, man. Do the honours. Who am I talking about? I did. I got it straight away because he just has a dulcet tone. We are, of course, talking of Nick Nolte. Yes. For me, the man has one of the most distinctive vocal stylings. He's right up there. And unconventional casting i would say it's not a role that like this is this is a this is a guy that was the maniac in a thin red line we're taking everybody over to that ledge we may take that ridge by nightfall the beat cop in um 48 hours we ain't partners we ain't brothers and we ain't friends that's right i thought his character quill was a really interesting character and had a really interesting arc within himself mm. these dudes they walk in and you're like oh i'd really want to know more about you. Favreau has that skill, man. Not many storytellers do, but Favreau has that skill of going, look, I know you actually would like to possibly know more about that, but I'm going this way. Yeah, yeah. Not too many spoilers, but the end for Quill was was emotional for me, man. Dude, yeah. And it was noble and it was spot on, dude, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really, really good. I kind of thought he was going to survive, to be honest with you. Yeah, I know. I kind of wish he did, but that's, um, there you go. You know, the Game of Thrones and Gravitas, you got to slay a couple of people we really like until we uh, understand the weight of the situation, you know? Absolutely. Another uh, guy who I saw in that that I thought, initially we didn't know who it was as well, another good introduction was Timothy Oliphant, oh. who was pretty much reprising um, a version of Bullock from uh, Deadwood, but yes. he was a space Bullock, you know, who had scored himself some uh, Mandalorian armor and people thought he was a Mandalorian. He was just wearing it because it looked cool and it really deflects a whole lot of blaster fire. So, yeah, he was a great introduction as well as a super skinny um, Mandalorian dude in this um, off-world planet. Really well cast. I'm sort of gradually coming around to the Oliphant. Like, I know this is going to be a controversial statement, but my experience with Deadwood, which I adored, was that for mine, he was a little bit of the weakest link. Like, just continually came off as a little underdone for me, a little beige, a little, a little ivory, woody. a little woody, white. Wasn't he? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Especially opposite the titular Al Swearingen. Oh, he's 
Ian McShane can't be beat, like, honestly. Yeah, he was outplayed in that show, but he was functional. Functional is good. I'll accept that. I take functional. That's the word I was looking for. If he was your employee in that role, he'd get the reference that's not necessarily shining. It's like he turned up, he was on time, and he did his duties. Yeah, bare minimum sort of stuff, you know. (laughs) But, you know, he was there. That's, you know. I digress, but in this, I really liked him. Yeah, I really yeah. did. Yeah, me too. Um, one, one actor of um who obtains some um, can we talk about the notoriety, please, of a particular actor at this point? Well, we've got um, the beautifully beautiful character, um, Cara Dune. Really yes. great introduction into the uh, the Star Warsian universe. Uh, you know, the war's obviously all over, and what happens to the soldiers who are so badass? Well, here you've got Cara Dune, who's become a bit of a renegade. She was a, a rebel shock trooper, um, denoted by a little tattoo on her arm, which is recognised by many of the Imperials. You've got to cover that up, or else we're going to kick your ass, sort of scenario. Yes. Well, it's um, Gina Carano, my dude, and... Sort of after season two, she gained all sorts of notoriety by putting up uh, a really sort of um, a comment on the Twitter that was uh, wasn't received incredibly well, comparing certain elements of current U.S. politics to Nazi Germany, and um, you got to be bloody careful, man, don't you? And you know, we've all I hope have read the statement at this point, and I can. I can see how inflammatory it is if you're feeling like being completely offended. Um, I can see also where she was sort of coming from because she doesn't directly say much at all about Nazi Germany. But you just don't do it, man. You shut up and you live your life and you take Disney's money and you enjoy another season. But what they did was they did cancel her um, after season two. And um, we've talked about her agent must have been sitting there banging his head or her head against the damn wall going, what did you do? (laughs) Look what you've done, you know, and you've just got a little bit of a revelation for me here too, which um, is new to me. Well, I do. The the saga seems to be, uh, you know, evolving. But you mentioned a word that the agent would have been saying. What did you do? I would amend that to why yes. did you do it? <laughs> yes. So I'm always fascinated, man, by these actors that graduate to a certain sense of self-importance. And they've got to broadcast their message. It's like, why, dude? Yeah. Acting's just a job. Mm-hmm. Like a dude who's a fitter and a turner doesn't suddenly start tweeting these grandiose ideas. And it's like, it's just really, it's just a job. You're no more important or less important than anyone else. Like, why do I necessarily give a, yeah. you know, I, I, I don't give a Frenchman's you-know-what for really half of what these people think about just as much as I don't walk into a library and ask a librarian, what do you think about people using prefixes these days? I just, it's not, <laughs> yeah. it's yeah. not something that I care about, right? And look, technically, this kind of wasn't her first strike. She'd she'd had a go at people using prefixes and that sort of stuff. It's exactly the point of intervention for the agent to go, why? Like, you got a sweet gig here, dude. Just. Shut up. Like, you don't need to do it. Who <laughs> yeah. cares? Remember, your job is to pretend to be someone else. That's right. That's all you do. 
That yeah. doesn't give you any sort of right to do anything else. Sure, you've got a medium, maybe a platform. Yeah, you're not actually someone else. That's right. It's like the, uh, yeah, Ian, Ian McKellen in The Extras, you know. It's Ian, it's Ian, it's Ian. That's like, right. You know, I'm not actually a wizard. Like, <laughs> right. Yes, yes. Yeah. As I always do, I have mixed views about this. On on one hand, eh, free speech, should be able to say whatever you want. On the other hand, I feel like she missed a prime opportunity to shut up <laughs> yeah yeah and so she was cast asunder in these sort of i suppose politically and ideologically turbulent times i don't know do you really want to launch a couple of missiles into into the zeitgeist mm-hmm. but now the latest is there's strong rumors that she is in negotiation with disney to to reacquire her role and to come back on board. I only cares about this from one perspective. I liked the character of Cara Dune. She would have been really difficult to recast. We've had recasting before throughout history, but to quote the uh, Liam Neeson, she brings a very particular set of skills, an embodiment within her role because of her Biffo background and all that. So... I'm kind of like, listen, all I really care about is what you do in this show. So I'd prefer if you came back in this show, but a really good piece of advice would be to shut the hole under your nose. <laughs> it's just mm. not worth it. Or your little well, thumbs. It's important for our continuity, man. I need it for continuity, you know, seriously. It just, whenever you recast someone, there's like a, uh, there's a cheapening, there's a pong that comes with it, you know, and um, if that's going to be a character that's going to maintain in this universe, and gee, it really does need to be her, or else they're just an elaborate killing off somehow, you know, she just disappeared into a pit of sarlacc and was never seen again, you know, that's fine. But have her there, please. I think we've made our position pretty clear. Let's move on by comparing to another casting role, and that would be the fantastic Katie Sackhoff ah. in the role as Bo-Katan. Look, Turns up, gets paid, does her stuff, commits, doesn't tap stupid things with her thumbs. Yes. What was your sense of the sack off in this role, my friend? Oh, she's fantastic. I think she's intimidatingly good looking, you know, and that came across especially with her as Starbuck in um, Battlestar Galactica, you know. This woman, man, what a powerful on-screen presence. She attracts not just, you know, from a stupid animalistic carnal side, but she's a striking person and she takes your vision so when she's on screen she's got a hell of a presence and her character Bo-Katan man super interesting super interesting group of dudes and um, when we're done with the, the casting convo I'd love to talk further upon her role um, and her character and what that means um, but yeah she's absolutely rad man cannot fault her at all I tell you what I became aware of an interesting experience within myself upon the second watch She's got a little bit of Carrie Fisher's essence, I think. Yeah. She's got a spunk to her. She's got something. And I've been obviously watching her for years. And you're right. Not only does she bring the presence, she brings a lot of geek history to the yard as well. Because I feel like Battlestar Galactica was wonderful and her role in it was flawless. Yeah. But yeah, there's just, there's a Carrie Fisher element of like, spunk to her that I couldn't put my finger on and and now I put my finger on. Yeah, okay, I like that. Like there's a 
you know, Carrie Fisher and 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 the uh, character of Leia, there is especially in the younger years, man, there is a sass. She is on the sass money. She is knows the word. what she wants. You know, she knows how to get it or she's going to tr- die trying. And there is something about that conviction from a character that is just so endearing, you know. Someone that feels like they're in control yes. of their situation. doesn't have to be our situation or what we're experiencing, but she is in control. And, um, yeah, that's that's a pretty powerful thing, I think, man. And, yeah, she was perfectly cast. And, as you said, brings a little bit of... Um, fan service geekdom to the role. I'm like, yes, here's someone that's jumped from Battlestar, an iconic sci-fi, to the Mando, which is becoming an iconic sci-fi in its own right. So, yeah, that was um, yeah, spot-on casting, and she is great and is bound for great things, you know, looking forward to seeing what happens next. And I hope that she's a recurring character, and she just has to be, right? Just has to be. Well, I think we pontificate and talk about that more at the end of this episode with our speculation section. Dude, Clancy Brown rocks in. The <laughs> yeah, Kurgan, dude. my bro. Yeah. They yes, had indeed. the Kurgan. <laughs> yes, man. Power, yeah, God. Dude, Once how happy again. were you? Like, I wish I could have seen your little face because I watched it with my family. I couldn't help it. They they understand that dad's always got his director's commentary on. But, yeah, I couldn't help it. I was like, the Kurgan. <laughs> <laughs> Family's like, who's he's, the Kurgan? It's like, he's the Kurgan. <laughs> he's got such an on-screen presence as well, doesn't he? Like, um, oh, And he had a really interesting role in a uh, – he was in a, a game called Detroit Become Human recently where he was fully mo-capped. Um, his face and all, and gee, you just there's some sort of comfort that he's there in a way, you know. I just yeah, what a presence that dude has as well, and he's sort of um, you know, to those that don't know Clancy Brown, he's often relegated to the cop. He's going to be the prison guard. He will be the tough drill sergeant. He will be that guy. So you've seen him a thousand times, even if you don't know his name. It's one of, he's one of those guys, man. I reckon our listeners are well connected to the Kurgan. I should hope. Yeah. Titus Welliver as the Imperial Captain. I always enjoy that dude. He, he turns up to play every time. I'm moving through a little quickly here. And I like it. I know we'll probably miss out some people. Let us know, by the way. But Legazamo. Oh, yeah. He just has a habit, man. He just has a habit of these smaller walk-on parts these days that are just... He just nails them. Like his contribution to the start of John Wick was just just fantastic, you know? Yes, He's just man. done it again here. Yeah. Yeah, love that dude. Once again, we're talking about screen presence. And for such a little dude, how the hell does he command that attention? It's really quite amazing, isn't it? So again, if you can punch a Russian mob boss's son in the face and then the mob <laughs> boss brings you and goes, why did you punch my son? And uh, he's like, because you stole John Wick's car, sir, and uh, killed his dog. And the mob boss is just <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> you know, yeah. you got yeah. to have a certain presence to be able to pull that off. More Legazamo, I say, my dude. I agree. Taika Waititi is IG-11. Yes, man. 
oh, that man can do no wrong right now. Seriously, everything he touches turns to the shiniest shiny gold you've ever seen, man. Love that guy. Any man that can put uh, in a uh, (laughs) Marvel movie and make it just feel like it should have been there the whole time is okay with me. I loved Richard Iwade as as the robot, as Zero. Yeah. Talk about, again, a distinctive vocal styling eminently recognisable. But look, yeah. I move through also sort of giving honourable mention to Ming-Na Wen. She's always fantastic. She even made that crappy Stargate Universe depressing show somewhat watchable for a while, which is a mm. heavy lift. <laughs> but my bro, we pause on one man, and I do think you be understanding who I'm referring to. It's the man that when he asks you to make him some eggs... You make the man some eggs. Making some damn eggs. Talk about this guy, brother. Tamuera Jake Demas Morrison. Yeah. My goodness me. Now, he's one of the most interesting cats for me in this Isn't whole he? endeavor, seriously. Because, I mean, not only... Well, he was introduced in um, Attack of the Clones as the guy, as Django Fett, who was the original blueprint for all of the clones that were made on Camino. Now that's millions and millions and millions. And I think, honestly, I, I sort of have gotten over it, but originally I thought it was a very interesting design choice in, I mean, he looks the part, but then all of a sudden you've got the scariest Republican uh, soldiers, everyone with this beautifully delicate, soft Kiwi accent. And it was sort of, it was a little bit jarring for me initially, man. Like seriously, you know, you can see that, right? And so yeah. he gets to reprise, well, he doesn't reprise his role. He is Boba Fett. Obviously, he's the clone of Django Fett. And this is something, that was a puzzle piece that sort of went, of course, my God, why didn't I pick this up? Oh, my God, it felt good once I got that. And so here he is, a little bit older, a little bit more portly, and had obviously survived the pit of Sarlacc that we saw him meet his inverted commas demise in Jedi. Now, He didn't appear. I can't remember which episode in Mando he appeared in, but, man, as soon as I saw Slave 1, his ship is introduced before he... I said to my the human who I was watching this with, I said, oh, my God, that's Slave 1, and I know whose ship that is. And, you know, the person I was sitting next to is like, who? What? Yeah. Oh, gorgeous white. And here's Boba Fett, man, in this old armor that's been just sort of misshapen and kind of got some curry stains on it and, you know, some blaster um, indentations. Totally. Man. And he came back with an absolute vengeance, man. What a guy. He just owns the screen with this, um, you know, this power he exudes strength this man and as if anyone else could be boba fett you know and all of a sudden all the other you know din jaren and everyone sort of paying a great deal of attention to the inverted commas original mandalorian sort of character the first time he was ever introduced you know so yes oh what an addition and it couldn't be anyone else and that sort of that rounded it up for me that meant all right, now we're actually part of the universe. Every little loose end has been cut off, burned off, or tied by having him in there. And wow, man, yes, that guy, I tell you. And there's more to come, and we'll talk about that at the very end, of course. But (laughs) in the meantime, just did a little bit of gushing. Sorry about that, everybody. It's messy. It's messy. Dude. Now, look, this is probably going to be, I think, my only main 
gripe in that I agree with everything you just said. Like it, it gave me such joy to see Tamawera Morrison in this production. And yeah, you're right. When you sort of pull it apart, there is some small scale level of absurdity to a giant army all cruising around with Kiwi accents. You and I discussed this years ago. It's like, well, why would they all have the Kiwi accents? They wouldn't have accents. It's possible to have the genetics and just be born, but does that mean that everyone raising you is from New Zealand? I don't know. It's a strange one to me, but it's one that you go, meh, high strangeness, that's fine. Yeah. Now, here's my only beef. We know that this is really only five years after Jedi. And I think it's between seven and nine years after the Battle of Yavin, so the original uh, destruction of the Death Star. So Boba Fett technically shouldn't be as old as Tamawera is. So Tamawera is a man in his 60s. Boba Fett technically by this timeline, so, you know, Jedi's only happened a few years before, should only be about 41 years old. So that's the only bit where I go, okay, cool. I'll look the other way on that. But well, maybe there's some explanation behind that, man. Maybe there is Sarlacc aging. Maybe. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe. But also, perhaps that's sort of like a uh, a default um, that the people, the engineers of Camino, put amongst the clones, so that a they would age quicker, and then uh, the Imperials or whoever or the Republic would then have to buy all new ones because these guys that they've created are depreciating so quickly. You get maybe 10 years out of them. Perhaps maybe that's one of the things, you know, they're actually DNA hardwired to age quicker. Bit of an extended dance remix of the uh, Roy Batty replicant Blade Runner Nexus 6 idea. Yeah. Hundy P, man. So there's a bit of a layman speculation about why that, because I thought about that too. And I'm thinking, wow, there's got to be a reason, man. There just has to be, you know. And likewise, in, in, a, in a funny little tangential idea, I couldn't work out why, you know, the Republic then after Order 66 became the Empire, why all of the troopers after that were not clones. Why were they not clones? Why all of a sudden do we have a character like Finn? Why do we have everyone with who's different sizes and all this sort of stuff? Well, turns out it's uh, it's very easily explained is that the uh, Imperials didn't want to pay um, the price that the uh, Kaminans were charging for the clones. That's as simple as it is. So they went for conscription. It's that simple. Yeah, so yeah. I just learned myself. And also in that event alone, you see the embedded weakness with cloning. Like obviously there's there's a kind of a the potentiality for a groupthink incident, which could you know, yes. just be an HR nightmare. Unreal. <laughs> and look, I concur with you also. I'm guessing that marinating inside a Sarlacc for X amount of time isn't the most generous fountain of youth. It's probably not good for you. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm happy really to look the other way. Um, I'm just being a, a little bit picky there. But going back onto track, dude, here's a guy. He's just got the gravitas. He's just got the steely gaze. He's just got the look. There's a parallel, I think, to Pedro in that he doesn't have a lot of lines, but just something about this cat that you take heavily seriously. So, yes. yeah, man, just a joy. And now, There is one other person that we have not mentioned in the casting that we have to discuss, and I'm going to preface this. This is an enormous spoiler. So once again, if you haven't watched this series, like you you seriously need to go and stand in front of a mirror. Mark Hamill, dude. Ooh. Before we gush and before I cross to your live gushing, 
let me applaud how low-key and stealth this production kept his involvement. It was fantastic. You and me have our ears to the track in terms of geek fandom stuff, and it was well suppressed. There was not a lot out there of Hamill reprising Luke Skywalker. Dude. Dude. I I know. How do you keep that secret? This is the biggest surprise that I've had in an entertainment medium in a decade. That's I can't think I of saying. another thing That's that appeared. I needed you oh. to watch it. It was oh, like, I know. I, then even, when I, got I the... didn't even tell you. It was like, oh. I, I need him to just oh, have man. a couchgasm live. Yes. yes. And it wasn't just Mark Hamill reprising Luke Skywalker. It was Mark Hamill repri- reprising Luke Skywalker in his youth and in his heyday. Our Luke Skywalker. Oh. Not the whimsied old blue tit milker that we had you know there was a real i'm serious man there was a real vindication part of my my most vehement spots of anger was that those movies turned an icon and we've talked about this they turned an icon into this bumbling he looked more like bloody nick nolte's character from down and out in beverly hills (laughs) you know than the great man that we knew he was dude Take me through it. What was it like for you to experience that? All right. Well, once again, I was viewing this with somebody who wasn't as a finger on their palsy when it comes to the Star Wars universe and all the things. I'm sorry so to the hear very, that. One of the very first, indeed. So one of the very first times in the series, we see a very particular craft that is the X-Wing, and we've seen them a million times. I've flown one virtually. I've done all sorts of stuff. I love it. So see this X-Wing. Um, and because, of course, it's coming to this crescendo when the Mando and the other Mandalorians are all trapped in this uh, in this ship and there's killbots after them and they can't be killed. Like, they just can't. And so something is going very wrong. And all of a sudden on the radar, there appears this little ship and it, like, zooms in and it's like, that's an X-Wing and it's docking. And then you get, for the next five minutes, this series of shots where... There is a Jedi, and it's black and white at this point, um, and this person is owning it, absolutely owning it, seemingly effortlessly doing all the bits, and you just get flashes via CCTV, and everyone's going, who is this? Who is all of this? And then it cuts to this... um, color shot and you see the color of the saber and like oh, historically I was telling my person historically the only person to have a green lightsaber is uh, Luke Skywalker and then these blast doors open some bad arsery happens and then the hood comes off and here is Luke Skywalker as we know and love him and that in my mind shouldn't have happened that wasn't going to be the answer to the question that I had all of a sudden. Oh, man. And there he was, looking all badassery, and he crushed some droids with his hands, and it just felt all really good. And, oh, my God, I couldn't keep it together. And I got it then, and I was so sorry. I'm so sorry that it took me so long to get there because <laughs> I don't know how I would have kept this. It's like, dude, Skywalkers. I mean, nothing, nothing, man. Oh, nothing. I was, getting, oh. I was getting close to just coming around and going, shit, down. <laughs> Gluing those eyes open. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, little man. matchsticks. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh. How exciting. Bro, from so many levels, it was such clever filmmaking as well because in previous episodes we'd seen X-Wings. Yes. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. Those were wonderful episodes. Even just seeing X-Wings was like, oh, that's that's cool. Because let's be honest, our heroes had basically withdrawn to the concept, oh, we're just about to get whacked. We're dead. Let me tell you, these battle droids, these dudes, they're not like the droid decars from like the prequels. In the canon, there's stories of like 20 of these dudes deploying to raise an entire community mm. village army to the ground. Like these dudes are just not to be messed with. You know, they're sequentially lining up and punching through a giant metal toy. Yeah, yes. It's just, it's incredible to watch. So we've spent a whole series looking at and just saying, you know, the Mandos, they're just absolutely top-tier predators, bad asses, And they're all kind of just, there's an unspoken thing of like, yeah, okay, we're about to all just get mashed. So there's a sense of finality to it. And almost hopelessness, which I reckon comes over beautifully. Mm. And yes, man, then the X-Wing arrives. Now, it's still dangling there because it could be the other dudes rocking up. Mm. The black and white was so important because, like you said, even once we see that this is a Jedi, we can't see that it's our Jedi. Yeah. And I agree with you. This is top tier. This is, this is Apex Skywalker. This is when he is... The baddest cat on the block. And again, I can't tell you how much canon I've read. This is the stage when he's turning up and throwing his lightsaber man and just guiding it with the force and it's just cutting through ranks of yes. people. You know, he's just not to be messed with. And as you say, he is just equalizing these dudes. It's no problem. It's not, no, it's no not factor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's just on, on the way to morning tea, you know. It's so casual how he does it. It's almost like, and again, one day in my heart of hearts, my little dreams, we'll talk to him. It's almost like he felt like he had to put that character right after after the blue tit milker that the movies had made him out to be. It was like, yes. nah, man. It was really like a, yeah, welcome back, Luke. This is how we actually think of you. Seriously, man. Because obviously the other character that we need to talk about, Rosario Dawson's performance of Ahsoka, mm. that all became on the cards the moment Ahsoka's like, no, nah, I'm not the Jedi. You know, I'm not the yeah. I'm not the Jedi to do this. Yeah. Ahsoka is so fascinating for so many reasons. Kind of the most prominent and well known grey Jedi. You know, she yes, sits neutral. in the middle, brother. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very interesting concept too, isn't it? It's yeah. channeling, channeling yeah. back in the day, you know, the D&D. I can't tell you how many neutral clerics I used to have. Though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the most fascinating thing for me as well, um, to pile it on top of the, the Skywalker's return, is how. How did they do it? Because Mark Hamill, my bro, as we know, is no spring chicken. He's 70, been, what, 72 or something? Yeah, he's been our Jedi since, since. You know, Since. the absolute original. Yes. And that, my dude, is uh, is no mean feat. That's quite remarkable. And so how do you bring Luke Skywalker back to the screen as he was in Return of the Jedi or just shortly after that? Well, let me tell you ever so quickly, if you wouldn't mind. Please. This is a technique that we call, and it's relatively new, and it's getting better and better and faster and faster the more that time goes on. And it's called Deep Fake. It's a very stunning piece of technology, and this is changing everything. And so what deepfake is, it's a very, it can be an incredibly long process fraught with lots of little hooks and ideas. But what it does is you take millions 
at least thousands, but millions of images from all angles of this person's face, scanned, rendered, and put into your device. And then what you do is, um, after a couple of weeks of doing that, so that the computer recognizes all possible angles of this particular face, you then just sort of composition it onto your actor's face and all of the motions, whether it be eyes flickering left and right, talking, smiling, moving your face, it looks like your subject. No problem. And so they did this with Luke Skywalker. Now, I mean, as baffling as that is, that's incredible. You've got industrial light and magic on the team, and that's nuts. There is a little uh, visual effects company that I just adore named Corridor Digital, and they go under the uh, Corridor Crew uh, moniker on YouTube, and I recommend jumping on this. And um, in the past, I've shared this particular video um, on the Facebook site. What they did was they were sort of a bit... Uh, they thought that this effect could have been done a bit better. Now, if you think you can do better than industrial light and magic, well, good on you. But these guys have the Nash. So what they did was they redid it. They did their own render and they did it the way that they thought it should be. Now, the problems that they had was you mentioned earlier a really interesting term, which is uh, uncanny valley. And when it comes to CG characters, it's all in the eyes the eyes whether we know it or not you can freeze frame something like what they did and every frame picture perfect but when you put that into motion there's a peculiarity and it's always with the eyes whether they're not quite tracking they're not quite looking they look like they're looking through you or there's no depth to them eyes are three-dimensional man they have layers and they're very remarkable things, you know. And so that was the real problem. So what they did was they redid the whole thing with their own actor and they did their own rendering from the for the deep fake and added a few more lighting effects so it looks a little bit, as they thought, to be a little bit more authentic. Man, the finished product is pretty stunning. For a couple of guys in a room taking three weeks to do this, not just rivaled ILM for their visual effects artistry, but pretty much superseded it just a little, but it was notably better. So that is a really, really interesting thing. And I'd love everyone to watch the uh, the little documentary they made about how they did this because it's it's just stunning, you know. And yeah, so what we're going to be seeing, fun. man, deep fake is everywhere now. I mean, that's it. Like uh, even in the Marvel Universe when they're doing, um, I can't even remember which one it was, where Downey Jr. is being his younger self in an yes. old memory this is what they did. This is deep faking. You take that younger version of that face, put it on the actual actor's face, and they're young again. Yes. You know, stunning stuff. And um, they tried to do it a little bit as well uh, with Leia after uh, Carrie yeah. Fisher had parted. Eh, didn't really cut the mustard. It was still a little bit weird. And a lot of those CG characters too, it's always as well, not just the eyes, but it's in the mouth. And so when a character is talking or emoting, what people forget, and I think some visual artists might forget, is that the top lip is never, ever responsible for any of the facial movement, especially when talking. So if the top lip just below the uh, your nose ever ripples or moves, that's an inaccurate facial movement. And so our brains pick that up instantly and go, oh, there's something wrong there. Regardless of how good it looks in the freeze frame, when it's in motion, it always looks a little bit sloppy and unrealistic. So it takes you right out of it, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, deep faking, man, there's a lot of strange ramifications to it as well with people putting 
other people's heads on bodies that shouldn't be put on, a.k.a. the uh, adult industry is rife with some really quite dubious and horrible sort of things happening. But um, I don't know firsthand, of course, P-Boss. I've just heard the stories. Amen. Heard them. You do you. you. I'm not, I'm do, not I'm judging. I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. <laughs> I'm not judging. But yeah, deepfake, it's an absolutely rad piece of technology and we're just going to be seeing a whole lot more of it. And it's probably going to be in reprisals of old characters being brought back you know, so we will be able to have a whole feature film with a very, very authentic looking Luke Skywalker eventually. You know, seriously, we're going to have we're going to be able to have sequels, direct sequels to um, uh, Jedi in those little realms and not 30 years later. You know, so we're going to be able to explore that, too. It's kind of exciting. It's definitely exciting, but there's a yin and a yang to it. It's two sides of a of an interesting coin. I, I agree with you. And yeah, you're right. Like Tarkin looked kind of stupid. Like in, I think it was Rogue One, Governor Tarkin. It was just like, yeah. oh, why? Why did you do that? Like, why not but just once again freeze frame it? He looks great, but then yeah, in motion he looks really crummy. Why not just hire an actor? Surely there's plenty of dudes out there that kind of can pass for a Cushing, you know, a mild Cushing. We, <laughs> I don't think we'd really care. You know what I mean? You and I talked about it years ago, but I honestly think I've seen better CG renderings and faces and, and artwork in video games than, than on that particular one. Yeah. The Carrie Fisher is interesting. I will say this. Go back, watch Star Wars again, and you will go back to that deep fake and not feel like it's as bad because she was such a porcelain doll looking like in the first one. You, you do forget. But, yeah, Tarkin, terrible. Definitely done better in the Marvel Universe. You're right. Like, Downey mm. looked good. And also, I think about Kurt Russell. Yes. In, um, youngified Kurt yeah, Russell. Guardians. Yeah. Yeah. Really well done. Really, the only thing that looked a bit weird was the hair so much, not so much the face. But, dude, the possibilities are endless. But I feel like it was an awesome opportunity for Hamill to go, all right, I can hang up the boots now like I've been represented in a way that because he we know I mean he he would have just felt absolutely disenfranchised and kind of had with the last few years of this character so I'm guessing it would have felt wonderful to go this is him but that does bring me to my second and only other gripe I agree with you it's a little anticlimactic when he pulls the hood off it is a little wooden it's like mm. that's not fantastic but I guess it's plausible to sort of go, well, that's the final episode. Money's probably getting a bit tight. They're doing the best that they can. But what a scene, my dude. What what an yeah. incredible scene. Insane. Lasting impact on me too, because I will be able to recall that. If someone says, hey, what was the last surprise you had in a major um, entertainment event for you? And I'd say, it's that. <laughs> Hands down, man. Agree. Yeah. Totally. Not, not been done better for me in terms of like, A, the surprise and then B, the practice. You know, we had a wonderful time seeing, I don't know why I keep banging on about Rogue One, but it was wonderful seeing, you know, Vader turn up and uh, equalise people again, you know, like the nostalgia trip. It was wonderful to sort of see, there's a bit of a parallel there. It was wonderful to see Vader in his element of like, nah, let's not forget, this dude was a Terminator. Like this dude was yes. a malicious Terminator. Like he can quite happily pin you to a roof, leave you there for a little bit and then go, nah, you'll get an impaling too. Yeah. That was lovely, but this was next level. It was just like top tier. This is this is Skywalker. This is what he became. I'd like to pontificate with you and just get a little bit excited if I could. 
Mm. and invite you to potentially get excited about the future of Star Wars. I know that's a big reductive sweeping statement. Indeed. But bear with me. I'll do my best. The reference to Grandad was another Mm -hmm. incredible moment for me in this series. I think I put on a particularly high voice and said, Oh, Grandad will throw it again to my poor family. I'll try to be brief with this. Timothy Zahn is one of the best in my opinion, writers of Star Wars canon. He's written many books that are just wonderful. And they were so good that Lucas, without a doubt, went, nah, that's canon. And now we also understand Disney have accepted him into the fold and said, yes, this is now canon within the Disney ownership. It's so important, my bro bro, because the places that Timothy Zahn took the Star Wars universe were genuinely creative, interesting still maintained all the Neapolitan that we needed, the the, the Akira Kurosawa, the Western, the used future. And Grand Admiral Thrawn is a central character in the Timothy Zahn universe. So who is Grand Admiral Thrawn? Great question, G-Fresh. Grand Admiral Thrawn was one of the highest officers underneath the Emperor. Now, this is the buddy, the Emperor that we knew that got chucked down the shaft, not the Emperor that owns... Frickin' pop copy and can just, you know, just disregard that, all right? <laughs> so Thrawn recognised that there was genuine work to be done and threats developing in the outer rim. So Thrawn is so far across the galaxy when the Palpatinian universe collapses. And essentially Thrawn is the successor to, to the Empire. This dude is incredible, man. He is a military strategist genius. So he's won so many battles and he's escalated so quickly through the Emperor's ranks. And he's a dude that's just fascinating. He considers when he goes into battle with a culture, he studies their art and their philosophy, dude. Mm-hmm. So yeah. he's that dude that goes, it's not enough to have the chessboard. I need to go in and learn how a society, what is at their beating heart, the essence. The, you know, he's a, he's a fascinating character. Now, I believe, because there's a couple of allusions to the Zanaverse, I believe that Favreau is well aware of this, well across this, and I believe there's the potential for him to be able to say, I'm, through television, going to lean into this universe. Everything else that happened on the cinema can sit there, i.e. the last three. That can sit there and just be there, and you can take that or leave it if you want. But all of this is actually going on around the same times. It's, It's threading through the same times. Note that in... This universe, man, there's no reference to the First Order. There's no reference mm-hmm. to any of that, which should be happening at around this time. It's just, nah, dude, I'm going to keep to this universe. My brother, this is why I feel like calling this episode A New Hope. This is actually, mm-hmm. in my opinion, this rich pageantry of story and narrative and character. Dude, Timothy Zahn has this whole universe where Han and Leia get married and have twins. Incredibly force-powerful twins and Luke trains them. It's just, ah. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't become a stupid tit milker. It's just so much rich pageantry. So many activities. If I flinged these books to you, you would just not want to leave your house for X amount. I mean, you you don't really like leaving anyway. I really don't, yeah. You would read these and digest these so fast. 
Yes. Okay, here we go. I think Timothy Zahn is to the Lucas world what Raymond E. Feist is to the Tolkien vibe. Yeah, okay. Yeah, not a competitor, but a complete, um, you know, what do you say? We're a complementer, you know? Yeah. Yeah, understanding the source material, not erasing what you think should have happened, but truly appreciating and accepting that, whether you like it or not, and taking running with it. It's like improvisation, man. you got to take the source material, do your best with it, and not say no. You need to accept it, take it, and run. And it sounds like he's done exactly that. And if you're right, you know, if, if you're right in uh, saying that Favreau really understands this level of uh, material that you're referring to, we are incredibly lucky. And this may be the uh, side of Star Wars that folk like us have really been waiting for after being <clears throat> poo-pooed on for the last couple of years. So, dude, I hope you're right, man, because I'm picking up on your passion, and goodness me, I'm going to run with that. Regular listeners of this podcast will know that we've had times when it's like giving Eeyore a microphone and a headset, and we've just said that Star Wars is dead. And I believe cinematically, <laughs> I don't think you can clean up that car wreck. You know, mm. there's talk about rescinding a couple of the movies and re-releasing and redoing Once them. you do that, you screw Bro, bro. Yeah, you, you can't know. do that, man. You can't do that. And that's why I think um, the TV media, man, like what a thing. Like what we then discussed, you know, we've talked about The uh, the Last Jedi and how, you know, there was so much material in there, whether you like it or not, there was a lot of material and they went boom, 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 two and a half yep. hours were done. I'm like, oh, geez, I was just bombarded. I've got, I'm saturated. I've got overload, you know? Whereas with The Mandalorian, when you got eight to 10 episodes meandering over an oh. hour each, Dude, there is a lot of room to explore, and that's what it really deserves, man. When we're talking about, you know, the rich history and the rich source material and the universe itself and the lore, come on, we've got a lot to explore, man. And let's not waste our time. Let's spend it, you know, and that's what The Mandalorian well, once felt Once like. you dabble in the canon, my dude, there are so many, you know... This, this takes me back to my days of hanging around Minotaur and just loitering with intent. There are so many wonderful bodies of work to use. So many dope yeah. comics, man. So much stuff that, that Lucas all did say, yep, that's in. That's canon. Yeah, that's fantastic. Also, let's be honest with what's going on with covid and all that sort of stuff, like the big screen... You know, the States, Asia, it's a bit of a poo-berg. So yeah. this kind of fits in well with the whole home Disneyfication saying, look, cinemas may not be such a big thing. It's almost like Favreau is this gift horse that's just been given a, a palette to paint. Having Thrawn there for me made me go, oh, boy. You are a clever little dude. How many times did we criticize DC and say, look, there's so many awesome comics that you could just follow frame by frame. There are your shots. Like why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why do this? <laughs> yeah. Favreau yeah. just didn't have any fear of being dumb. He didn't need to be dumb. So anyway, so I wanted to sort of finish up on with that. There's a new hope, in my opinion. I don't think it's a coincidence. Yeah. I don't think this wonderful guy who, by the way, started the MCU, you know, the yeah. Marvel Cinematic Universe, yeah. and was involved with it all the way through, brother. Like him, you know. Yeah, and an ongoing character in every one of them, really. Him and Kevin Feige have gone camping and slept in tents, the same tent a lot. 
in I, I don't know. I just had yes. a vision of that. So <laughs> that's the dude you give the keys to, my bro, bro. That's it, man. And it sounds like it's been done, hasn't it? And that's the great thing about it. And thanks to that, man, because that's, that's a part of the Star Wars universe that I'm not as familiar with. You know, it, in fact, not at all. I am now, though, and <laughs> I appreciate that. But that's, um, you know, that fills me full of, uh, full of hope. And, um, you know, let's um, steer this crazy bus to the, uh, to the shore, Please. shall we? Because this is a floating <laughs> bus. Um, how it ends, how the how the series ends, you know, you've got to get to the end of the credits. This is how it always works. There's always a little thing now and you have to do it. Clever way of getting me to look at all the names and go, <laughs> Stephen Bollocksville. <laughs> and I spend that's half of my game at the end of the show. I was sort of like looking at stupid names like <laughs> the key grip. What the What's hell is he that? gripping? And on it goes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so we get to the end and then all of a sudden what we get at the end, I know I'm going to spoil it because it's Please. important at that time, yeah. right? You get our... Re redone and really fresh Temiora Morrison, Boba Fett, sort of coming to a very familiar throne room that we know is on Tatooine and we know it's one of the huts. It's definitely Jabba's and he's got, what's that guy's name with the tentacles? Did you say tentacles or testicles? Because it's a different answer. Both. Um, it's uh, <laughs> Bib Fortuna, my bro. Oh, Bib Fortuna. Thank you very much. And there's our Bib Fortuna that would say, They want a wonder. And he's been in a paddock, so obviously yes. felt the fruits of being number one. Yeah. The logical idea that you never thought about. You go, oh, yeah, Jabba got whacked. Yeah. He's got a whole uh, functional organisation. Uh, I guess, of course, Bib would, you know. Yeah. And th so there's <laughs> fat Bib, Fortuna, he sitting needs a on bib. the throne. He does. He does. What a Fortuna Bib that is. And so he's sitting there with sort of, you know, Sarlacc juice coming down his face and looking all comfy and cosy. And then Boba Fett comes in. It's not even a very um, glamorous dismissal. The guy pretty much just gets off and Boba sits down and poses on what is Jabba the Hutt's throne. Fade to black. Oh, my God, dude. Of course that's the way it goes. Boba's gone back and now he's the head of the Hutt clan, at least in Jabba's realm. He's got his role. Dude. That is something I want to see explored. Yes, sir. Yes, I do. That's a really cool thing. My viewpoint has shifted. Initially, I was a bit like, really? Of all the places you could go, that's the thing that you want to explore? Like, surprise, yes. Like, couldn't have predicted that. But, yeah, upon thinking about it more, it's like, oh, no, this has got, this has got huge potential. Oh, it's got legs, man, you know, unlike Jabba. Hey, you're on fire, son. That's, that's cough hey, medicine's like that? really kicking in. <laughs> oh, man, it's good. Yeah, you could kind of do a, like a Sopranos gangster, like, you know. Yeah. It's so open, man. It's so ripe. You can do anything. I loved the shot, bro. It was reminiscent of the end of Conan, you know, when Conan ascends to the yes. throne and becomes a king. Yes. It had that vibe about it. But, dude, exactly. again, all in the performance. Like, Bib just goes, hey. <laughs> I'm over here now. Over here yeah. if you need me. Yeah. I think it's curious and I look forward to, to where it goes because the other potential is huge. Like, who is Grok? What are the origins of yes, Groku? Yes. Um, dude, are we potentially going to get to see training montages with Skywalker and Groku? I mean, like you said, you've exactly. now alluded to a technology where there's a world where that can happen. Oh, 
Yes. And as if that's not on the cards, like if you, you know, that's what happens with the, uh, like the, the MCU, right? Things happen in that, that are so big and, you know, game changing for the characters and for the story. And it takes it to this level where you're like, oh shit, everything has to change because of this. And they're allowing it to happen. They fully explore that. Well, this is the era that we're in and with Favreau at the helm, whipping this pony, dude, I think we're going to get that. And it's going to take us in another direction that we don't even know yet. But if you're even half right about Thrawn's scenario and a potential of Skywalker training Groku, shit, man, sign me up. I'm in and I'm coming for that ride and I'm going to be there every step of the way for every minute of it. And you won't have a two-week buffer saying, can you please watch the bit where Han Solo comes back? (laughs) You know, there won't be that. Oh, dude, I will not tolerate that again. I will not tolerate it. But happen. the interesting thing is we're now living in a universe, if that is the way that we go, if it's if it's th- if it's the Throniverse, if it's the Zarniverse, Han's still alive. Leia is still alive. And yes. like you said, yes. we now potentially have technologies where we can explore this sort of stuff. I could easily put up with recasting. Who cares? It wouldn't be the worst. Sure. We did it for the solo movie. Yeah. It's all possibly there, but I, yeah, I guess I wanted to sort of wind up today by going, isn't it strange to be living in a universe again where one could look at Star Wars and be excited? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Because it took us in a direction that none of us expected. Um, This is the greater universe. um, And none of us really bloody wanted or liked. This was the difference. This feels like the true sequel in a way to Jedi. This is the sequel, man. It just happened to be 20 episodes long and took 20 hours to get there. I don't care. We got that's there. That's my point. I'm you know? glad you're there. I think yeah. I think that's what mm. it is. And we've also been told that we are going to get another series of Mando. That's obviously not done. I love the idea that Favreau's gone, well, no, I'm just going to go here for a while. Why? Oh, because I can. But Probably, yeah. much like I've done with Kevin Feige, I've got an overarching plan that might undulate in some sort of variability of episodes in a Tarantinoing sort of a way, but it's all going to have an overarching narrative and it's going to go somewhere. <sighs> yeah. And for the first time, man, this is a this is a big point, is I feel like um I feel like I can trust it. I can trust that it's in the right hands. It's going to go in the right direction like you know you've said it a couple of times it's a new hope and it really is man so i think we can relax we can well i'm not even going to relax i'm just going to sit here excitedly rocking back and forth until i get my next installment that's how excited i've become about this man. that'll help yeah yeah i mean that helps things faster it's like someone at the traffic lights just keeping on pushing that button yeah it's gonna happen quicker you know yeah. goodness man i love it so we're in business, i love it man. we're in business we're back in business all right my dude yes the boys are back in town dude thank you for today what a treat an absolute treat. We finally, finally got to do this. And this episode, just for a little bit of a, well, it's not a preface anymore. It's a suffice, I suppose, that um, this has been the uh, Lost in La Mancha 
episode for us. This one has been very hard to uh, release and to get out there. This is, in fact, I don't want to harp on about it, but it's been our third attempt. There have been technical difficulties. There have been commitment difficulties. <laughs> and um, we, we're, we're here, and I'm bloody looking forward to uh, putting this one up, man. So thanks again for having the patience and come along on this journey with me and driving most of it, to be honest. Hey, hey. This is good fun. This is not weekend at Bernie's. You're animated. You're here. It's uh, it's exciting. And, and look for disciplinary <laughs> reasons. We had to leave you out of the studio last episode, but mm-hmm. it's wonderful to have you back yes. in. Oh, feels good. My seat's still warm. Thank yeah, you for well, that. Sorry about that. It's lovely. That's actually really awkward. I know. Took about half an hour to clean. But uh, look, for those playing at home, we we shall pontificate uh, the vicissitudes of all things pop culture, all things high strangeness, just all things very soon. Live live in hope, my peoples. Live in hope. (laughs) Live in hope. That's the moniker for the day. Farewell, human beings, and we'll catch you next time. This has been the Manchalian Candidate. My name's G-Man, and of course, the ever-powerful Sarlacc pit-slaying creature himself, P-Boss. Yeah. Later, everybody. Toodles.